Hi, I'm Ellen Pompeo, and welcome to Tell Me. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Today, I'm sitting down with Melinda French Gates. Melinda is a philanthropist, a businesswoman, and a global advocate for women and girls. Through her work at her foundation for the last two decades, she has seen firsthand that empowering women and girls can bring about transformational improvements in the health and prosperity of families, communities, and societies. Her work has led her to increasingly focus on gender equity as a path to meaningful change. I had a great conversation with her. We talked about a lot of things. We talked about Christmas because this was before Christmas. So we talk about some fun things. There's a great ending to this podcast, which I won't give away. You have to listen to the whole thing, something I didn't even know was going to happen. We talked about her work. We talked about life and the humanity in all of us. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Melinda French Gates. I loved every minute of it. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Ellen. Of course. So you just said you're ready for the holidays. Tell me. Well, this is the time of year where, at least for me, I'm finishing up a lot of work before the end of the year with the foundation and my company, Pivotal Ventures. And then I do what's called close the door for the holidays. And we really, as a family, take about two weeks off. And Christmas is one of my favorite times of year, has been since I was a child. So I go full out. (laughs) Nice. So do you go pick out your tree? I don't pick out my tree myself, but I have very special ornaments that I like to have on the tree in very special places. Okay, so I love to go pick out the tree with the kids. It's a Mm. whole thing. And we go to one place every year. We like to support this one company. They come down from Washington State and they bring their trees. They were kind enough this year to call us and let us know that they don't have a lot of big trees. I'm hearing that. Yeah, because of the fires. This year, they said, you know, can we just deliver the one big tree that we have? And so I don't skip the tradition with the kids. I will physically go there and let them pick out a little tree for their playroom. Oh, that's so sweet. We've had that tradition for a long time that our kids have little tiny trees in their room with different themes every year. And I will say my friends this year are talking about going to the Christmas tree lots that the trees just aren't nearly as big. And so one of their college daughters said, well, mom, I know you'll do full mom on the tree before I get home. And so my (laughs) friends have all been doing full mom on their tree, even if they're smaller trees. Okay, so you said you shut down for two weeks. Your daughter recently got married, correct? Correct. Mazel. Congratulations. Thank you. How was the wedding? It was lovely. 
really lovely. All the fall leaves were out. It was amazing. We could gather with good COVID restrictions. We just felt so lucky. Nice, nice. So on one of my cheat sheet for you, I did read The Moment of Lift. Congratulations. Thank you. It is a great book, The Moment of Lift, How Empowering Women Changes the World by Melinda Gates. We love it. Everybody should read it. So one of my cheat sheets says that you're a recovering perfectionist and that you and I have that in common. I'm not in recovery. <laughs> but You should be. <laughs> I'm working on it, Melinda. You know, I'm a work in progress. We all are. <laughs> How are you doing? Do you really rest for two weeks? Do you miss work when you don't work? Or what do you do for two weeks every day? Oh, for two weeks, I really do just take time off. And for me, it's time to be with the kids, be with my parents, have time to do some of the just traditional things of bake cookies and have lots of people coming and going from the house. I love that. And let the house be more messy than normal and stay in my pajamas some days till past 10 a.m. That's really wonderful. Listen, that's an art. I give it up to you for that. It's really an art. I love the chapter in the book. I'm not sure what chapter it was, but you tell a story about your mom and how when Microsoft called to offer you the job, your mom picked up the phone mm. and said, are you going to offer Melinda a job? And the person on the other line said, I'm not supposed to tell you, but obviously your mother was charming enough. <laughs> and, and the person said, we are, in fact, calling to offer Melinda a job. I thought that was a really charming little anecdote in there. And it gave me a window into, you know, your mom. And I think you mentioned that your mom did work, did not go to college, but did have a job that paid better than your dad? Well, I would say my dad was the aerospace engineer, but the paying job that my parents shared was a small business, an investment business, which became our college fund, where we really improved houses and put them back on the market. So yes, my mom had a full-time job outside our home, in addition to raising us four kids. Right, right. You say that. And then your dad sort of would work after his day job. He would come and, and help her. Absolutely. Was that your mother's idea to start that business? It was both of my parents' idea because they both from the get-go said that their four children would be college going. They thought that if your children go to college, they have the best chance at doing whatever they want in life. And both of my parents said, so we need to start a business to have the income to do that so our kids don't come out of college with a lot of debt. It's a huge gift from them. Yeah. Speaking of college debt, that is really a huge problem we have in this country specifically. I can't speak to other countries. You probably could speak much better on the state of that in other countries. But it just makes no sense to me how kids come out of school with a degree in so much debt and just have to work to live exorbitant amounts of money on rent and pay back their tuition. The system regarding education and continuing education is definitely broken. And I think the really tragic thing is the kids who start down the path of getting their degree and have a lot of debt, but then aren't able to complete because of a number of factors. That is really tragic. But yeah, the student debt is a huge concern right now for the country. Do you get frustrated? I mean, you're quite famous, obviously, for your philanthropy, right? And giving $50 billion to, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and fighting poverty and disease all over the world. And that's incredible and larger-than-life concept for most people to even grasp. But you have done so much and you've seen so much poverty in the world. 
do you get really frustrated or do you think you have extraordinary coping skills? Because you have seen a lot in Africa and in India and in these countries. What allows you to sort of cope with what you see? One of the things I talk about in my book is you have to let your heart break. I mean, when you see some of the types of poverty I've seen in places in the world, people living on less than a dollar a day or not able to feed their children, and then the reality is I can get on a flight and fly back to the United States, that is just completely inequitable. And I usually stay in country and take time to really take in what I've seen. And there's a lot of tears a lot of times. But by the time I come back to the U.S. and I try to be in the doors of the foundation, well, that would be pre-COVID when we could still be in the doors of the foundation, but back at my video screen, um, I try to take in the lessons I've learned and what I've heard and put that back into the work so that I make sure the foundation's working on what I think are some of the highest impact things so that we can help people lift themselves out of poverty. We talk about mental health a lot with women, and it gets a lot of attention. Thank goodness it does. But we need to continue to talk about it. The conversation always has to stay flowing because the truth is, no matter what your circumstances are, your financial circumstances, it's not just as easy as just jumping on a plane and leaving what you see behind. For an example, for me, when Gray's was, I don't know, maybe year six or seven or something, we would meet a lot of Make-A-Wish kids. Mm. We're unfortunately not able to meet them anymore, same because of COVID. I was having a lot of relationships with parents with children who were dying. Mm -hmm. And after the children would pass, I continued to have a relationship with their parents. And this happened multiple times. Sure. And I got to a point where I felt like, you know, if this child's dying wish is to have a relationship with me, then Mm. who am I to say no? Mm. And I kept doing it and I kept doing it. And my husband said to me, you know, I think it's too much for you. I think that you shouldn't be up at three o'clock in the morning crying. Mm. It's great that you have this empathy, but this is a lot on you. Mm. And you have to get up and work in the morning. And I felt like some responsibility to like grieve with these parents and grieve for these children. And I finally had to say, I can't cope anymore. Mm. I'm not qualified or skilled enough to walk these parents through the death of their child. But I couldn't create a healthy boundary because Mm. of my empathy and my sadness for them. And so it was a real moment for me when I had to sort of learn coping skills and not feel guilty about taking care of myself. Mm -hmm. And so when I ask you how you cope, I don't want that to sound to people listening like we're out of touch, you know, on every level. Whoever you are, wherever you are, every human being has to have a coping mechanism for whatever your circumstances are. Absolutely. And I really appreciate you bringing that up because I think sometimes I've certainly been in situations. I had a group of teens that I was with. This was about a decade ago in a very impoverished setting in a part of L.A., And when they had time to ask me questions, it became very clear that they had this assumption that because I had wealth, I'd never had heartbreak. 
And I said, oh my gosh, you all, that is just not true. You know, you're not insulated. None of us are insulated. And I think one of the things COVID has shown us is that we are all connected and we all get touched by things. You know, I knew somebody who was on a ventilator at the beginning of COVID and almost didn't make it. So we have to have empathy for one another and we have to take care of ourselves and have healthy boundaries. And so I don't think it's any surprise to anyone. You know, I went through an extraordinarily difficult divorce in the last year. I was not out in these remote places of Africa that I normally go experiencing heartbreak, mainly because of COVID, but I don't think I could have done both, right? My heart was so broken for my own self and my own family, whereas now I'm starting to have some resilience again. And I hope, depending on what happens with COVID, I can be out maybe, you know, eight months from now. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Isn't life funny how you went through this heartbreak of a divorce and your daughter was experiencing one of the happiest times of her life? Yes. Life is just a motherfucker that way. Pardon my French, <laughs> Melinda Gates. But like, you know, I guess, you know, the happiness is there to soothe the pain. This week, particularly, there's been some incredible losses in my industry within my friends. Mm. And I didn't know personally either person who passed, but so many of my friends are heartbroken mm -hmm. and I'm heartbroken for them. And I'm waiting for something good to happen to balance out because this week feels incredibly heavy, not for me personally, but just for my friends. Actually, the one brilliant thing that did happen this week, the island of Barbados became its own country and it separated from the UK. Yeah. Isn't it neat when you see things like that happen? And especially people advocating for themselves and then finally the change happening. I think that's often what gives me hope is when you see a group of people come together to create change. And in fact, as Margaret Mead said, it's the only thing that ever has created change is when a group of committed like individuals are together working on a problem. And I think one of the things that, you know, I talk about a lot in my book is that I really believe in groups of individuals coming together. And that's often a group of women, whether it's at a village level in Africa or whether it's a group of women at the highest levels of Congress or in parliaments. When you get a group of women together, women leaders, and enlightened men who also push issues forward, that's when you create the most change. And I think so often in society, particularly in the past, you would only get one woman in a position of power here and there. And so they had to sort of assimilate into a man's world. I hear a lot of older women talking about this who did have good careers, but they're like, oh, if I had it to do all over again, I would have lifted up younger women coming behind me. And I am seeing the world move in that direction. And that's why I've been 
so much talking about women's power and influence. We need to make sure women get at all these levels of society in key, key industries like technology, because it changes our society, like finance, like Congress, because that's who makes our laws, media, which you and many other women do, because you create our stories and help us really explain our narratives of lots of different types of women. So we're not just, young girls aren't looking up and just seeing a few male leaders. They're looking up and seeing lots of different female leaders of different types, because we are different types, different archetypes. We don't always have to be one way. Right. It's interesting to me. You talk about tech and females in tech, and there's some statistics in your book, and I won't be so foolish as to try to repeat them because I won't get them accurate. But is it true that there are less women in tech now than there were when you worked at Microsoft? When I graduated from college, which I'll date myself here, the late 1980s, there were more women graduating with computer science degrees than there are now. And so it took this precipitous drop about five years after I was out of college. And women are just now starting to gain back those degrees in computer science. And that is a huge problem because it means that our technology is being coded by men. The rules that are baked into artificial intelligence are being created by men. And it's not that men are bad or good. It's that they have their view of the world and it doesn't always look like everybody else's view of the world. I mean, one of the things I love about what Shonda Rhimes says about so much of the programming she's done, one of which you're on, you know, is she tried to represent all views of society because she saw society in a different way because she was a Black woman. So if you have a table where everybody who's doing the coding or setting down the rules are a bunch of white guys in their 20s, you're probably not going to get a very diverse view of society. And what happens is you bake bias into the system. And to me, that's a real problem. I agree. I was trying to think of women, and I'm a huge fan of Kara Swisher's podcast. She has two, uh, Sway and Pivot, Mm -hmm. and she talks a lot about the tech world. And I was trying to think of a woman who has been famous or developed some tech that's changed the world. And the only woman I can think of, and I, I don't even know the name, but Bumble is the only platform, tech platform that I can think of that was created by a woman. But of course, it's a dating platform. Of course, it's a dating platform. You know, why aren't there more tech advances by women? And who are the famous women? Well, I'm really glad you bring this up because for women to lead a tech company, just like anybody who leads a tech company, if you've got a startup, you need to be able to get venture capital, right, to start your business. Women will tell you that running the gauntlet on Sand Hill Row in Silicon Valley, which is where the predominance of venture capital is, is almost impossibility. So the statistics show that very few women actually get their businesses capitalized via venture capital, and even fewer women of color, less than 1%, get their businesses capitalized. And so one of the things I've been working on with this company, I have Pivotal Ventures, which is to create social change, is to try and get more tech hubs outside of Silicon Valley, Austin, D.C., Chicago, 
where we have incubators for women and people of color so they can get mentored on their businesses, but then also link them up to venture capital so that we have more places in the United States that, again, are more diverse and businesses are being capitalized that are coming lots of different ideas from women or people of color who have great ideas. But again, the people who are running venture capital today don't want to take risks on those businesses or don't understand those businesses. And so the good thing that is happening in the venture capital space is you're seeing more women-led funds, and they are over-indexing on women and people of color's businesses so that we can get those good ideas out there. But it's exactly why you're not seeing as many women led tech companies these days because they're not getting funded well. Right. I have a friend, Arlen Hamilton, and she has a VC firm. I don't know if you've heard of her. I have. You have? Uh-huh. Great. And then there's another women-led VC firm out of New York, I think, called Trail Mix. Yeah, there's several these days. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, as many things as there are wrong with social media, mm. there's a lot that's great about it. And one of the things I see with my daughter, and she's very limited what she is allowed to look at and see, but simple things that in my generation, and I'm sure your generation, my daughter said the other day that boys in school were teasing a girl, asking her, oh, are you on your period? Mm. And she said, we have to destigmatize menstruation. Why are these boys saying this? And she's 12. You know, and I've certainly had a lot of conversations with my daughter about it. And we have a lot of conversations about everything. But destigmatize? You know, I don't know if I've said that to her, but she actually said, Mom, there's someone I want you to have on your podcast. This woman works to destigmatize menstruation, and I think you should support her and have her on the podcast. And I said, I absolutely will. I'll get my assistant right on it. I think it's great because that's part of women's health, right? It's something that happens to us every month, essentially from age 12 or 14 up until a certain age. And yet we don't talk about it as much as we should and we need to destigmatize it for men and boys. And I do see more young adolescent girls using social media in that way to destigmatize these topics and to have funny videos about it and say, okay, this is what's going on. And it's important that we say that's part of a woman's life cycle. And hopefully that message can carry in only the way social media can to poorer countries so that we can start empowering women as you have been doing your whole entire life and career and educating them about menstruation and genital mutilation and all of these cultural traditions that are just absolutely abusive, horrific practices on young, young girls. And hopefully they see these messages and they start to learn and they start to realize that there is hope out there. You talk in your book about one girl who made a bet with her father and said, I will succumb to the genital... Cutting. Genital cutting, yeah. Genital cutting, but I won't get married. I'll let you right. do that, but you can't marry me off. Mm. And it takes young women like that who have the courage, which takes an enormous amount of courage to be able to speak up against ancient, ancient traditions in villages where you're the only one who thinks that way. But I think those same principles can be applied to girls right here in the United States who come from rural Mississippi or the backwoods of Pennsylvania when you feel like you're the only person mm -hmm. who thinks differently. You know, you can find the courage possibly to speak up 
and try to be a leader. That's what makes a leader. And hopefully when girls speak up, they get other people to stand behind them and say, well, I agree with that too. And if the courage of one person inspires the courage of others, definitely, then they have to take that chance. Exactly. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. And one of the things that I think, you know, cell phones and social media do give the opportunity that these messages get spread and they get spread in new ways. So one of the concepts, say, of adolescent girls keeping them safe from early teen pregnancy or sexually transmitted diseases, using condoms, I have seen some of the most creative social media campaigns done in Nigeria by young people, you know, who live in Lagos coming up with these really catchy ways to teach one another on social media. And so the phone gives us a way in where they might be getting different cultural messages from the men or the advertising that they might be seeing in their communities. But then when they get these other messages from people who are like-minded, their age, sometimes it's in a social group that they're in. You can form these social networks and sometimes it's over the phone. It's one of the reasons I'm such a big proponent of trying to make sure that more people in low-income countries, particularly girls, have access to the internet, not just a cell phone with their name on it and their account, but access to the internet. Because When you do that, it democratizes information and they can start to see things that other teenagers are posting from their own countries or bring in new ideas. And that is one of the things that starts to change society. And so the cell phone actually gives us an opportunity in this nonprofit world that we didn't have, you know, a decade ago, just like our teenagers, you know, a decade ago, didn't really have cell phones doing some of the social media things they're doing today. Yeah, it would be a great idea to sort of like, I don't know, connect girls in the United States with, remember we used to have pen pal programs? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just to write to kids. And I know like my daughter's school, they call it their sister school in Haiti. Sure. And they have, you know, relationships and communicate and write emails back and forth. And I think that the same could be done for destigmatizing menstruation or contraception, any of these things between girls in the United States and girls in other countries. 
Yeah. And I think our girls here also have a lot to learn from them as well about their culture and things that they do in really innovative ways. Like some of the most innovative, you know, dancing and singing and new ways of putting things together are coming out of other countries back into ours. And I think that's a really great thing to see. So it's not just Hollywood anymore. It's, you know, Bollywood and it's Nollywood. Those ideas are flowing across oceans now in a more democratized way. And I think that's pretty neat. I do too. Thank you for mentioning that. It reminds me of a few weeks ago, you know, the kids, they see, you know, everybody on social media twerking. (laughs) So Lizzo did this amazing, I think it was a TED Talk Mm. about twerking and the origins of twerking in African dance. And she did this amazing TED Talk and I made my girls watch it. And I said, you know, if you want to learn about twerking, Lizzo has been kind enough to like take the time to make a video and talk about the origins of African dance. But it's true. There are lessons. There is history. There are things to be learned both ways, back and forth. Absolutely. You're also making me realize, so my last of my three kids, I guess I should call them all young adults now, just left for college. She's 19. So she's a freshman in college this year. So I don't have anybody dragging me along at home. She used to be the one at home who was saying, come on, mom, you're getting so old. You have to get on Snapchat. You're just going to be out of it. So I have to admit, I kind of wish I had a 12-year-old in my house right now. I'm afraid I'm going to get very old very quickly. (laughs) I have to say, people have said to me, oh, you know what? I want to be a young mom. Like you had kids late. And I think the kids keep you young. I'm happy I had my kids when I did. I had my kids in my, you know, super late 30s, early 40s, but I wouldn't change a thing because they're perfect. And they do, they keep me young. They definitely, my 12-year-old is, I know exactly what's going on with the kids. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a good thing as a mom. It's when you're not in the know that you're in trouble. (laughs) How do you resist the urge to like get an apartment right next to your kid's dorm? (laughs) (laughs) Trust me, she would vocalize very strongly if I did that. (laughs) But she does say to me, come on, admit that you miss me. And she knows I miss her all the time, but I I don't want her to feel like I'm a lonely at home because I'm not. So we have a funny back and forth about that. (laughs) It's got to be emotional. I think about it all the time because my daughter is 12 and I have friends that are now, their kids have gone off to college. But was it very emotional for you or are you able to look at it in a super positive way and embrace their growth and transition? You know, when my three children were three, six, and nine, if you brought up college, I would start crying. The thought of the three of them going, I was like, are you, you know, I just couldn't even imagine it. And then my sister, who's two years older than me, and her kids are about five years older than mine, said, you know, Melinda, when it's time for them to go, you're going to know you have done your job well if they're independent enough and ready to go. And so when I reframed it and saw it that way, the launch has actually been easier. And you start to learn that you have a different relationship with them, but it's a more adult-type relationship and the conversations are different. It turns more into coaching. They still need you for sure. You'll be surprised when you're in their 20s. But it just changes over time. And that's actually a really lovely thing. But yeah, when they were little, I could cry at the drop of a hat thinking of them going to college. And when they were two, one of them was two, I used to say, I'll just send them to college in their crib. (laughs) So you learn that you have absolutely no control once they go to college. (laughs) I think I, like you, was raised Catholic. Mm. 
But it was an eye-opener for me to leave Boston and come to a different place and meet different culture of people. And so I agree, when you look at it through that lens, it's much easier to take. Yeah. And that's why I'm such a big proponent of kids going away to college. Because for me, when I went off to college, that I started to meet people of different cultures. So same thing. I was very much ensconced in my Catholic community. Now, luckily, we had some extremely conservative Catholic priests, but my parents gravitated more towards priests that were a little bit more liberal and then put me in a school, a high school with liberal Catholic nuns so we could question our beliefs. But I really had never been around anybody who was Jewish until I went off to Duke University. And there were, you know, lots of people from New York, but I just hadn't had other cultural experiences. And so being able to examine my own beliefs or examine the way different people thought about different issues, that's why I'm such a big believer in kids going away to college too, be away from home, meet other people who are not the same as you. Boy, any kid who has the chance to travel, you know, in high school or college and even go to another country, it just opens your eyes to the fact that, you know, LA or Seattle or New York is not the center of the world, right? There are so many other people and cultures out there and ways of thinking. And to me, that's just broadening for anyone. Yeah, it's interesting because I think in every state, no matter where you are, I think it's Taraji P. Henson said one time in an interview that I saw, you know, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles, and I hope I'm getting this right, but Hollywood seemed like another world. And really, it's just 11 miles away. Mm -hmm. So that definitely exists for young women. So Melinda and I are encouraging all of you young girls to get on the train or the bus, if you can, (laughs) and just go explore. (laughs) Take a day trip to the nearest big city. Go with someone. Be safe. But take a day trip to the big city and just see what else is out there because it will open up your mind for sure. Absolutely. And I have to say, one of the reasons I want so many women to do well in all kinds of fields and including media is young girls look up to those role models and say, I can be like that character. I can be like that news anchor. You know, my oldest daughter, who's 25, she's in medical school right now. And she and her two best friends in high school on Sunday nights, what did they do when they finished their homework? (laughs) They plopped down and watched Grey's Anatomy. And two of the three are in medical school today, right? I mean, Media does have an outsized impact on role modeling. You could be like this person, right? And the show you're on, the female characters aren't anything all alike. There are lots of different types of characters. And they could say, oh, I want to be more like that one or more like this potential type of doctor than that one. That is really, really important. It's why we need more female leaders in all types of positions in the country. It's powerful. Representation really matters. It's true. One thing that I was thinking about when you mentioned healthcare, the state of healthcare, mm. specifically of how healthcare workers are treated. I have another little side project called Healing Healthcare. And I started over the pandemic doing Zooms with healthcare professionals, nurses, doctors, and just opening up, you know, a table sort of conversation about how are they feeling, the state of things, what do they see as the obstacles the frustrations in their day-to-day work. And it's shocking to me how healthcare workers, specifically nurses, are treated in this country. I can't speak to other countries, 
But hospitals are now seeing a shortage of healthcare workers, and the nurses have finally had enough. The mm. nurses have said, you don't recognize our worth. You don't value us. And we've had enough. And nurses are quitting in droves. And travel nurses have now become the hottest thing and the easiest way for nurses to make money. And I'm really happy to see these nurses standing up. They're not being treated well. And they're not valued the way they should be. And it, economically, from a hospital business standpoint, it doesn't make sense. They should want the nurses to be so happy. They'd have better outcomes. They would make more money if their hospitals ran more efficiently, if their nurses were happier. And that's a little side project of mine that I work on, just creating a dialogue and a space for nurses and healthcare workers to sort of get together, share their experiences, share their stories. And that's been fun for me so important, right? Because they are usually the first people you see at the hospital and they're the ones who help send you home and do everything in between. I mean, the doctor's in and out of your room pretty quickly or doing the surgery and you see him or her a few times, but it's the nurses who take care of you. And so I think, you know, during COVID, what we've seen is the stress on them is immense. And why do we have these jobs in society that we pay less, whether it's nurses or whether it's teachers? And, you know, those roles are predominantly filled by women. And yet they are some of the most caring, important positions in society. I mean, if you think of a young adult or even an older adult like me, who do I look back on that was seminal in my life besides my parents? It was some of those key, key teachers along the way. And I have to say, even when I was delivering my three children, especially the first one with no pain medication, I really didn't care whether the doctor was there or not at the end of the day. I wanted that nurse who'd been with me for 10 hours. I was like, please don't go off shift, right? Exactly. Yeah, you know what I think is a great thing? Because things can happen in home births also. I've been having conversations. A friend of mine recently had a baby at home and it had complications happen. And I think a doula and a midwife in the hospital with you in a mm. birthing suite. So in the event something goes wrong, you're there, but you don't really need the doctors intervening. You can really just do it with the doula, the midwife, and have your little tribe of women together and only really need the hospital system if you really need it. Yeah, but being there is a good thing because if you do run into a complication, you want to be right there and be able to take care of it, whether it's high blood pressure or it's emergency C-section. But yes, I think, you know, midwives often can play an extraordinarily strong role in the birth. Yeah, and hopefully women are advocating more and getting educated via social media about the options available to them that you can have a doula and a midwife in the hospital with you. Who are your friends? Who do you hang out with? <laughs> I have a lot of good friends in Seattle just a posse, particularly of female friends. And I write about three of them in the book that I walk with literally every Monday morning. And during COVID, we had to switch to all talking on our phones, but we would all walk in each of our respective neighborhoods. And then once COVID started to get a bit better and we knew we could be outside together and the weather got a little bit warmer, we would walk on Mondays. Now we're kind of back in our rain jackets walking in our own neighborhoods. But without those three women and about five others who are around me, I really don't know how I would have gotten through parenting in life. <laughs> right. I love a walk. I think everybody since COVID started walking. Mm. I never heard of anybody like taking walks. 
Like, I don't really remember walking being such a thing. And now I feel like it's such a thing. I had a great walk with my neighbor yesterday. I enjoyed every minute of it. Well, and I think we're meant to get outdoors and people feel better when they're outdoors, you know, and out in nature. So again, friends in New York talking a lot about, you know, early, especially early in COVID, the first six months, you know, kind of the only saving grace would be Central Park for many of them to get out with their kids and be out and about. So yeah, I'm really glad I live in Seattle. There's a lot of greenery around. Yeah, we didn't go this year or last year, unfortunately, due to COVID. But usually we go film in Seattle once a year. And I absolutely love it. I wish we could do it more. The food is so good Mm. up there. It's such a quick flight from L.A., And I really love filming up there. I hope we can go this year. Is the city really suffering from COVID? I know Los Angeles, we're really suffering. We have serious crime problem here, astronomical homeless problem. But yet real estate prices are through the roof. These young kids can't afford their rent. There's just such an imbalance here of extreme wealth and extreme poverty. How does Seattle look? Yeah, Seattle, we're definitely having a very large homelessness problem you know, finding shelter and wraparound services for people is something the city's working on, but not making nearly enough progress nearly fast enough. And it's really, really sad to see, particularly as we go into these winter months where it's particularly cold and rainy in Seattle. So yeah, it's heartbreaking to see. But I think for us, that's why as a foundation, we really try to work on these issues in the United States, making sure the school systems are better. We work on economic mobility. How do you help low-income families find good services or find good shelter and housing, or if they're on the cusp, not fall into homelessness? I think we have to have better social safety nets as a country. And I think it's time for all of us to step up and figure out, you know, how do we participate in government so that this goes better for people? How do we participate either in philanthropy or linking philanthropy, civil society, private sector, in government. It really takes a whole system of people looking at this and saying, we expect something different in our country. I think, you know, we're seeing some of the extremes that I think you don't want to see in the United States. And at least I'm encouraged when I see a group of like-minded people putting their heads together around these problems and starting to find some solves. I do too. Well, Melinda, this was an absolute joy to talk to you. I'm really happy and grateful that you made the time. And I thank you for everything that you do. Um, Oh, sorry. What? What? Oh, my goodness. She's. Marina told me she was a recipient of the Gates Foundation. I'm going to cry. Gates Foundation. She went to college for two years on the Gates. My assistant, Marina? Wow. Oh, my gosh. That's so great. Get in here. <laughs> Are you going to cry? Wait, come on camera. Hi. Melinda, this is my assistant, Hi, Marina. So nice to meet you. Hi, Marina. Where did you go to college? In Florida. But I went to high school and they were starting a program called Early College. Sure. Funded by you guys. And so I got my AA for free in high school. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. That's exactly the kind of thing that I love to hear. When I meet people who it's like, oh, they were able to do something different with their lives because of a program they had access to. That's just great. It did. It helped me go to school. Oh, well, I'm so glad to meet you, Marina. It was nice meeting you as well. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. She is shaking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, Lauren threw me under the bus. No. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my goodness. 
Is I can't. So she's in my house every day, all day long, and she never mentioned this. Oh. This is like such an exciting episode of the show. Oh my goodness! Now I have to give her a raise. You see? Wow. Thanks. Wait. Bye. Is that not magic, though? Isn't it amazing? Yeah. You said, how do you remain hopeful? It's exactly that, right? Even when we see bad news headlines every day or something, but then you see somebody like Marina, you know, who's on a different path in life. That's what keeps me hopeful. Oh, my goodness. I, like, literally, not to sound corny, everybody, but, I mean, I really have tears in my eyes. I mean, Mm. to know that you helped her, and I'm sitting here with you, and I don't know, I believe in magic. That's Mm. all. I'm going to end this by saying I believe in magic. I think you're magic. Mm. And I'm grateful that you're on this planet doing what you do. And I hope when I come to Seattle, we can hang out and have dinner. Or if you come to L.A., we can hang out and have dinner. Definitely. We could do a walk together, one of our neighborhoods. I would love it. Okay, take care. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. 